Part two of Story seventeen of the Fairy Ring. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Perry. The Fairy Ring. Edited by Kate Douglas Wiggin and Nora Archibald Smith. Story seventeen. Yvonne and Finette. A Tale of Brittany. Part two. Chapter five. Poor Finette, seated on the seashore, waited all day long for Yvonne, but Yvonne did not come. The sun was setting in the fiery waves when Finette rose, sighing, and took the way to the castle in her turn. She had not walked long in a steep road, bordered with thorn trees in blossom, when she found herself in front of a wretched hut, at the door of which stood an old woman about to milk her cow. Finette approached her, and making a low curtsy, begged a shelter for the night. The old woman looked at the stranger from head to foot. With her buskins trimmed with fur, her full red petticoat, her blue jacket edged with jet, and her diadem, Finette looked more like an Egyptian princess than a Christian. The old woman frowned, and shaking her fist in the face of the poor forsaken girl, "'Begone, witch!' she cried. "'There is no room for you in this honest house.' "'My good mother,' said Finette, "'give me only a corner of the stable.' "'Oh!' said the old woman, laughing and showing the only tooth she had left, which projected from her mouth like a bear's tusk. "'So you want a corner of the stable, do you? Well, you shall have it if you fill my milk-pail with gold.' "'It is a bargain,' said Finette quietly. She opened a leather purse, which she wore at her belt, took from it a golden bullet, and threw it into the milk-pail, saying, "'Golden bullet, precious treasure, save me if it be thy pleasure.' And behold, the pieces of gold began to dance about in the pail. They rose higher and higher, flapping about like fish in a net, while the old woman on her knees gazed with wonder at the sight. When the pail was full, the old woman rose, put her arm through the handle, and said to Finette, "'Madam, all is yours, the house, the cow, and everything else. Hurrah! I am going to town to live like a lady with nothing to do. Oh dear, how I wish I were only sixty. And shaking her crutch, without looking backward, she set out on a run toward Carevere Castle. Finette entered the house. It was a wretched hovel, dark, low, damp, bad-smelling, and full of dust and spider's webs, a horrible refuge for a woman accustomed to living in the giant's grand castle. Without seeming troubled, Finette went to the hearth, on which a few green boughs were smoking, took another golden bullet from her purse, and threw it into the fire, saying— "'Golden bullet, precious treasure, save me if it be thy pleasure.' The gold melted, bubbled up, and spread all over the house like running water, and behold, the whole cottage, the walls, the thatch, the wooden rocking-chair, the stool, the chest, the bed, the cow's horns, everything, even to the spiders in their webs, was turned to gold. The house gleamed in the moonlight among the trees, like a star in the night. When Finette had milked the cow, and drunk a little new milk, she threw herself on the bed without undressing, and, worn out by the fatigue of the day, fell asleep in the midst of her tears. Old women do not know how to hold their tongues, at least in Brittany. Finette's hostess had scarcely reached the village when she had hastened to the house of the steward. He was an important personage, who had more than once made her tremble when she had driven her cow into her neighbour's pasture by mistake. The steward listened to the old woman's story, shook his head, and said that it looked like witchcraft— then he mysteriously bought a pair of scales, weighed the guineas, which he found to be genuine and full of weight, kept as many of them as he could, 
and advised the owner to tell no one of this strange adventure. "'If it should come to the ears of the bailiff or the seneschal,' said he, "'the least that would happen to you, mother, would be to lose every one of these beautiful bright guineas. Justice is impartial. It knows neither favour nor repugnance. It takes the whole.' The old woman thanked the steward for his advice, and promised to follow it. She kept her word so well that she only told her story that evening to two neighbours, her dearest friends, both of whom swore on the heads of their little children to keep it a secret. The oath was a solemn one, and so well kept that at noon the next day there was not a boy of six in the village that did not point his finger at the old woman, while the very dogs seemed to bark in their language, "'Here is the old woman with her guineas!' A girl who amuses herself by filling milk-pails with gold is not to be found every day. Even though she should be something of a witch, such a girl would none the less be a treasure in a family. The steward, who was a bachelor, made this wise reflection that night on going to bed. Before dawn he rose to make his rounds in the direction of the stranger's cottage. By the first gleam of the day he spied something shining in the distance like a light among the woods. On reaching the place he was greatly surprised to find a golden cottage instead of the wretched hut that had stood there the day before. But on entering the house he was much more surprised and delighted to find a beautiful young girl, with raven hair, sitting by the window and spinning on her distaff with the air of an empress. Like all men the steward did himself justice, and knew, at the bottom of his heart, that there was not a woman in the world that would not be too happy to give him her hand. Without hesitating, therefore, he declared to Finette that he had come to marry her. The young girl burst out laughing, upon which the steward flew into a passion. "'Take care,' said he, in a terrible voice. "'I am the master here. "'No one knows who you are or whence you came. "'The gold that you gave the old woman has raised suspicions. "'There is magic in this house. "'If you do not accept me for a husband this very instant, "'I will arrest you, and before the night perhaps a witch will be burned before Carevere Castle.' "'You are very amiable,' said Finette, with a charming grimace. "'You have a peculiar way of paying court to ladies.' Even when they have decided not to refuse, a gallant gentleman spares their blushes. "'We Bretons are plain-spoken people,' replied the steward. "'We go straight to the point. Marriage or prison, which do you choose?' "'Oh!' cried Finette, laying down the distaff. "'There are firebrands falling all over the room.' "'Don't trouble yourself,' said the steward. "'I will pick them up.' "'Lay them carefully on top of the ashes,' returned Finette. "'Have you the tongs?' "'Yes,' said the steward. "'picking up the crackling coals. "'Abracadabra!' cried Finette, rising. "'Villain, may the tongues hold you, "'and may you hold the tongues till sunset.' "'No sooner said than done. "'The wicked steward stood there all day long "'with the tongs in his hand, "'picking up and throwing back the burning coals "'that snapped in his face, "'and the hot ashes that flew into his eyes. "'It was useless for him to shout, "'pray, weep and blaspheme. "'No one heard him. "'If Finette had stayed at home, "'she would doubtless have taken pity on him.' but after putting the spell upon him, she hastened to the seashore, where, forgetting everything else, she watched for Yvonne in vain. The moment that the sun set, the tongs fell from the steward's hands. He did not stop to finish his errand, but ran as if the devil or justice were at his heels. He made such leaps, he uttered such groans, he was so black and scorched and benumbed, that everyone in the village was afraid of him, thinking that he was mad. The boldest tried to speak to him, but he fled without answering, and hid himself in his house, more ashamed than a wolf that has left his paw in the trap. At evening, when Finette returned home in despair, instead of the steward she found another visitor little less formidable. The bailiff had heard the story of the guineas, and had also made up his mind to marry the stranger. He was not rough like the steward, 
but a fat, good-natured man, who could not speak without bursting into a laugh, showing his great yellow teeth, and puffing and blowing like an ox, though at heart he was not less obstinate or less threatening than his predecessor. Finette entreated the bailiff to leave her alone. He laughed and hinted to her in a good-natured way, that, by right of his office, he had the power to imprison and hang people without process of law. She clasped her hands and begged him with tears to go. For his only answer he took out a roll of parchment from his pocket, wrote on it a contract of marriage, and declared to Finette that should he stay all night he would not leave the house till she had signed the promise. "'Nevertheless,' said he, "'if you do not like my person, I have another parchment here on which I will write an agreement to live apart, and if my sight annoys you, you have only to shut your eyes.' "'Why?' said Finette. "'I might decide to do as you wish, if I were sure of finding a good husband in you. But I am afraid.' "'Of what, my dear child?' asked the bailiff, smiling, and already as proud as a peacock. "'Do you think,' she said, with a pettish air, "'that a good husband would leave the door wide open "'and not know that his wife was freezing with cold?' "'You are right, my dear,' said the bailiff. "'It was very stupid of me. I will go and shut it.' "'Have you hold of the knob?' asked Finette. "'Yes, my charmer,' answered the happy bailiff. "'I am just shutting the door.' "'Abracadabra,' cried Finette. "'May you hold the door, villain, and may the door hold you till daybreak.' And behold, the door opened and shut and slammed against the walls like an eagle flapping its wings. You may judge what a dance the poor captive kept up all night. Never had he tried such a waltz, and I imagine that he never wished to dance a second of the same sort. Sometimes the door swung open with him in the street, sometimes it flew back and crushed him against the wall. He swung backward and forward, screaming, swearing, weeping and praying, but all in vain. The door was deaf and Finette asleep. At daybreak his hands unclasped, and he fell in the road head foremost. Without waiting to finish his errand, he ran as if the moors were after him. He did not even turn around for fear that the door might be at his heels. Fortunately for him, all was still asleep when he reached the village, and he could hide himself in bed without anyone seeing his deplorable plight. This was a great piece of good fortune for him, for he was covered with whitewash from head to foot, and so pale, haggard and trembling, that he might have been taken for the ghost of a miller escaped from the infernal regions. When Finette opened her eyes, she saw by her bedside a tall man dressed in black with a velvet cap and a sword. It was the seneschal of the barony of Kerver. He stood with his arms folded, gazing at Finette in a way that chilled the very marrow of her bones. "'What is your name, vassal?' said he in a voice of thunder. "'Finette, at your service, my lord,' replied she, trembling. "'Is this house and furniture yours?' "'Yes, my lord, everything at your service.' "'I mean that it shall be at my service,' returned the seneschal sternly. "'Rise, vassal! I do you the honour to marry you, and to take yourself, your person, and your property under my guardianship.' "'My lord,' returned Finette, "'this is much too great an honour for a poor girl like me, a stranger, without friends or kindred.' "'Be silent, vassal,' replied the seneschal. "'I am your lord and master. I have nothing to do with your advice.' "'Sign this paper.' "'My lord,' said Finette, "'I don't know how to write.' "'Do you think that I do either?' returned the seneschal in a voice that shook the house. "'Do you take me for a clerk? A cross. That is the signature of gentlemen.' He made a large cross on the paper, and handed the pen to Finette. "'Sign,' said he. "'If you are afraid to make a cross, infidel, you pass your own death sentence, and I shall take it on myself to execute it.' He drew his heavy sword from the scabbard as he spoke, and threw it on the table. For her only answer, Finette leaped out of the window and ran to the stable. 
the seneschal pursued her thither but on attempting to enter an unexpected obstacle stopped him the frightened cow had backed at the sight of the young girl and stood in the doorway with finette clinging to her horns and making of her a sort of buckler you shall not escape me sorceress cried the seneschal with a grasp like that of hercules he seized the cow by the tail and dragged her out of the stable abracadabra cried finette may the cow's tail hold you villain and may you hold the cow's tail till you have both been round the world together and behold the cow darted off like lightning dragging the unhappy seneschal after her nothing stopped the two inseparable comrades they rushed over mountains and valleys crossed marshes rivers quagmires and breaks glided over the seas without sinking were frozen in siberia and scorched in africa climbed the himalayas descended mont blanc and at length after thirty-six hours of a journey the like of which had never been seen both stopped out of breath in the public square of the village a seneschal harnessed to a cow's tail is a sight not to be seen every day and all the peasants in the neighbourhood crowded together to wonder at the spectacle but torn as he was by the cactuses of barbary and the thickets of tartary the seneschal had lost nothing of his haughty air with a threatening gesture he dispersed the rabble and limped to his house to taste the repose of which he had begun to feel the need chapter six while the steward the bailiff and the seneschal were experiencing these little unpleasantnesses of which they did not think it proper to boast preparations were being made for a great event at kerver castle namely the marriage of yvonne and the fair-haired lady two days had passed in these preparations and all the friends of the family had gathered together for twenty leagues round when one fine morning yvonne and his bride with the baron and baroness kerver took their seats in a great carriage adorned with flowers and set out for the celebrated church of st macleod a hundred knights in full armour mounted on horses decked with ribbons rode on each side of the betrothed couple each with his visor raised and his lance at rest in token of honour by the side of each baron a squire also on horseback carried the seigneurial banner at the head of the procession rode the seneschal with the gilded staff in his hand behind the carriage gravely walked the bailiff followed by the vassals while the steward railed at the serfs a noisy and curious rabble as they were crossing a brook a league from the castle one of the traces of the carriage broke and they were forced to stop the accident repaired the coachman cracked his whip and the horses started with such force that the new trace broke in three pieces six times this provoking piece of wood was replaced and six times it broke anew without drawing the carriage from the hole where it was wedged everyone had a word of advice to offer even the peasants as wheelwrights and carpenters were not the last to make a show of their knowledge this gave the steward courage he approached the baron took off his cap and scratching his head my lord said he in the house that you see shining yonder among the trees there lives a woman who does things such as nobody else can do only persuade her to lend you her tongs and in my humble opinion they will hold till morning the baron made a sign and ten peasants ran to the cottage of finette who very obligingly lent them her gold tongues they were put in the place of the trace the coachman cracked his whip and off went the carriage like a feather everyone rejoiced but the joy did not last long a hundred steps farther lo the bottom of the carriage gave way little more and the noble kerver family would have sunk quite out of sight the wheelwrights and the carpenters set to work at once they sawed planks nailed them down fast and in the twinkling of an eye repaired the accident the coachman cracked his whip and the horses started when behold half of the carriage was left behind the baroness kerver sat motionless by the side of the bride 
while Yvonne and the Baron were carried off at full gallop. Here was a new difficulty. Three times was the carriage mended, three times it broke anew. There was every reason to believe it was enchanted. Everyone had a word of advice to offer. This gave the bailiff courage. He approached the Baron and said in a low tone, "'My lord, in the house that you see shining yonder among the trees, there lives a woman who does things such as nobody else can do. Only persuade her to lend you her door for the bottom of the carriage, and, in my opinion, it will hold till morning.' The Baron made a sign, and twenty peasants ran to the cottage of Finette, who very obligingly lent them her gold door. They put it in the bottom of the carriage, where it fitted as if it had been made expressly for it. The party took their seats in the carriage, the coachman cracked his whip, the church was in sight, and all the troubles of the journey seemed ended. Not at all. Suddenly the horses stopped and refused to draw. There were four of them. Six, eight, ten, twenty-four more were put to the carriage, but all in vain. It was impossible to stir them. The more they were whipped, the deeper the wheels sunk into the ground like the coulter of a plough. What were they to do? To go on foot would have been a disgrace. To mount a horse and ride to the church like simple peasants was not the custom of the Kerverse. They tried to lift the carriage, they pushed the wheels, they shook it, they pulled it, but all in vain. Meanwhile the day was declining, and the hour of the marriage had passed. Everyone had a word of advice to offer. This gave the Seneschal courage. He approached the Baron, alighted from his horse, raised his velvet cap, and said, "'My lord, in the house that you see shining yonder among the trees, there lives a woman who does things such as nobody else can do. Only persuade her to lend you her cow to draw the carriage, and in my opinion she will draw it till morning.' The Baron made a sign, and thirty peasants ran to the cottage of Finette, who very obligingly lent them her golden-horned cow. To go to church drawn by a cow was not, perhaps, what the ambitious bride had dreamed of, but it was better than to remain unmarried in the road. The heifer was harnessed, therefore, before the horses, and everybody looked on anxiously to see what this boasted animal was capable of doing. But before the coachman had time to crack his whip, lo, the cow started off as if she were about to go around the world anew. Horses, carriage, baron, betrothed, coachman, all were hurried away by the furious animal. In vain the knights spurred their horses to follow the pair. In vain the peasants ran at full speed, taking the crossroads and cutting across the meadows. The carriage flew as if it had wings. A pigeon could not have followed it. On reaching the door of the church, the party, a little disturbed by this rapid journey, would not have been sorry to alight. Everything was ready for the ceremony, and the bridal pair had long been expected. But, instead of stopping, the cow redoubled her speed, Thirteen times she ran around the church like lightning, then suddenly made her way in a straight line across the fields to the castle, with such force that the whole party were almost shaken to pieces before their arrival. CHAPTER Seven. No marriage was to be thought of for that day, but the tables were set and the dinner served, and the Baron Kerver was too noble a knight to take leave of his brave Bretons until they had eaten and drunk according to custom, that is, from sunset till sunrise, and even a little later. Orders were given for the guests to take their seats. Ninety-six tables were ranged in eight rows. In front of them, on a large platform covered with velvet, with a canopy in the middle, was a table larger than the rest, and loaded with fruits and flowers, to say nothing of the roast hares and the peacocks smoking beneath their plumage. At this table the bridal pair were to have been seated, in full sight, 
in order that nothing might be lacking to the pleasures of the feast, and that the meanest peasant might have the honour of saluting them by emptying his cup of hydromel to the honour and prosperity of the high and mighty house of Kerver. The baron seated the hundred knights at his table, and placed their squires behind their chairs to serve them. At his right he put the bride and Yvonne, but he left the seat at his left vacant, and, calling a page, "'Child,' said he, "'run to the house of the stranger lady who obliged us only too much this morning. It was not her fault if her success exceeded her good will. Tell her that the Baron Curver thanks her for her help, and invites her to the wedding feast of his son, Lord Yvonne. On reaching the golden house, where Finette in tears was mourning for her beloved, the page bent one knee to the ground, and in the Baron's name, invited the stranger lady to the castle to do honour to the wedding of Lord Yvonne. "'Thank your master for me,' answered the young girl proudly, "'and tell him that if he is too noble to come to my house, "'I am too noble to go to his.' "'When the page repeated this answer to his master, "'the Baron Curver struck the table such a blow "'that three plates flew into the air. "'By my honour," said he, "'this is spoken like a lady, "'and for the first time I own myself beaten. "'Quick! Saddle my dun-mare, "'and let my knights and squires prepare to attend me.' It was with this brilliant train that the baron alighted at the door of the golden cottage. He begged Finette's pardon, held the stirrup for her, and seated her behind him on his own horse, neither more nor less than a duchess in person. Through respect he did not speak a single word to her on the way. On reaching the castle he uncovered his head and led her to the seat of honour that he had chosen for her. The baron's departure had made great excitement, and his return caused still greater surprise. Everyone asked who the lady could be that the baron treated with such respect. Judging from her costume, she was a foreigner. Could she be the Duchess of Normandy, or the Queen of France? The steward, the bailiff, and the seneschal were appealed to. The steward trembled, the bailiff turned pale, and the seneschal blushed, but all three were as mute as fishes. The silence of these important personages added to the general wonder. All eyes were fixed on Finette, who felt a deadly chill at her heart for Yvonne saw, but did not know her. He cast an indifferent glance at her, then began to talk in a tender tone to the fair-haired lady, who smiled disdainfully. Finette, in despair, took from the purse the golden bullet, her last hope. While talking with the baron, who was charmed with her wit, she shook the little ball in her hand, and repeated in a whisper, "'Golden bullet, precious treasure, save me if it be thy pleasure.' And behold, the bullet grew larger and larger, until it became a goblet of chaste gold, the most beautiful cup that ever graced the table of baron or king. Finette filled the cup herself with spiced wine, and calling the seneschal, who was cowering behind her, she said in her gentlest tones, "'My good seneschal, I entreat you to offer this goblet to Lord Yvonne. I wish to drink his health, and I am sure that he will not refuse me this pleasure.' Yvonne took the goblet, which the seneschal presented to him on a salver of enamel and gold, with a careless hand, bowed to the stranger, drank the wine, and setting his cup on the table before him, turned to the fair-haired lady who occupied all his thoughts. The lady seemed anxious and vexed. He whispered a few words in her ear that seemed to please her, for her eyes sparkled, and she placed her hand again in his. Finette cast down her head and began to weep. All was over. "'Children!' cried the baron, in a voice of thunder. "'Fill your glasses!' Let us all drink to the noble stranger who honours us with her presence. To the lovely lady of the golden cottage. All began to huzzah and drink. Yvonne contented himself with raising his goblet to a level with his eyes. Suddenly he started and stood mute. 
his mouth open, and his eyes fixed like a man who has a vision. It was a vision. In the gold of the goblet, Yvonne saw his past life as in a mirror, the giant pursuing him, Finette dragging him along, both embarking in the ship that saved them, both landing on the shore of Brittany, he quitting her for an instant, she weeping at his departure. Where was she? By his side, of course. What other woman than Finette could be at the side of Yvonne? He turned toward the fair-haired lady, and cried out like a man treading on a serpent. Then, staggering as if he were drunk, he rose and looked around him with haggard eyes. At the sight of Finette he clasped his trembling hands, and, dragging himself toward her, fell on his knees and exclaimed, "'Finette, forgive me!' To forgive is the height of happiness. Before evening Finette was seated by the side of Yvonne, both weeping and smiling. And what became of the fair-haired lady? No one knows. At the cry of Yvonne she disappeared, but it was said that a wretched old hag was seen flying on a broomstick over the castle walls, chased by the dogs, and it was the common opinion among the Carevers that the fair-haired lady was none other than the witch, the godmother of the giant. I am not sure enough of the fact, however, to dare warrant it. It is always prudent to believe, without proof, that a woman may be a witch, but it is never wise to say so. What I can say, on the word of a historian, is that the feast, interrupted for a moment, went on gayer than ever. Early the next morning they went to the church, where, to the joy of his heart, Yvonne married Finette, who was no longer afraid of evil spirits. After which they ate, drank and danced for thirty-six hours, without anyone thinking of resting. The steward's arms were a little heavy, the bailiff rubbed his back at times, and the seneschal felt a sort of weariness in his limbs. But all three had a weight on their consciences, which they could not shake off, and which made them tremble and flutter, till finally they fell on the ground and were carried off. Finette took no other vengeance on them. Her only desire was to render all happy around her, far and near, who belonged to the noble house of Kerver. Her memory still lives in Brittany, and, among the ruins of the old castle, any one will show you the statue of the good lady, with five bullets in her hand. End of part two of Yvonne and Finette, A Tale of Brittany. Recording by Lucy Perry, in Bath, on May 1st, 2009.